And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. I think today's podcast is going to be special, at least to me. And the reason it feels so special is because I just finished two wonderful days, one in Los Angeles, uh, speaking to the L.A. chapter of the AAII, and that was absolutely terrific fun, and I had the extreme honor to share the uh, the morning uh, presentation with uh, Dr. Craig Israelson, who I think is one of the, the finest teachers of uh, this investing process that I've ever met. So that was great fun. And then uh, on Sunday, I came back to Seattle and uh, spoke at the Seattle Money Show. Totally different kind of audience. Uh, uh, A lot of people who are looking for uh, something that will produce profits now. (laughs) And uh, as opposed to, I find the AAII people are more long-term oriented. So, great fun, great questions. Uh, As a matter of fact, I am going to devote this podcast to a list of questions I did not have a chance to uh, address uh, at the uh, LAAAII. So, let's get to it. And I want to start with probably the most commonly asked question of the last few months. Now, it often comes uh, with a very long uh, study of some sort or uh, uh, quoting somebody's article. But the bottom line question, and these questions at the AAII presentation, they had a three-by-five card. And so the three-by-five card, short paragraph, but here is the question. Is the value premium dead? I get this in so many ways. People wanting to know whether small cap value is going to go back to the way it used to be in terms of producing a better return than the S&P 500. Uh, there is the question uh, how long it's been since the, uh, the small cap value and large cap value have produced a premium. And, and I think the, the bottom line is they're kind of asking, is this normal? And if it's normal, does that then mean it's going to get good again? Well, I, I think it's a wonderful learning moment for all of us because if we take the time to dig into the numbers i think i think you'll you'll be surprised at at what i found uh i know that most of the criticism has been about this most recent period now in some cases that period is 5 years some it's 10 but i i see it written all the time going back uh 20 years and that uh, value just has lost its punch. Well, I looked at those numbers for, for the period from 1999 to, 19, uh, to 2018, but I also looked at what happened to the previous 20 years, and then what happened to the previous 20 years, and then what happened to the previous... <laughs> In other words... I wanted to get a sense of how somebody might have felt 
going into this last 20 years, and then how it might have failed over another 20 Because we know, I think we all know, that statistically one or five or 10 years is not something that we should depend on as an indicator of future performance. Because if you do that, then you have to say, okay, the S&P 500 for 10 years from 2000 to 2009 lost 1% a year on a compound basis. So I certainly don't want to be in that asset class. But we also know, because we like that asset class, that if we look further, we see that there are other times that it doesn't live up to expectations and uh, and that we have to be patient. But it is, I think, a learning moment when we look at these periods And let me take you through first the S&P 500. That, of course, is the blend between growth and value. And so you're going to have some punch from value, but you're actually going to have uh, a bigger push because of the growth part uh, of that portfolio in terms of uh, the, the periods of skyrocketing during growth markets. So... Let's go back to how people felt at the end of 1998, before we go through this 20-year period that people are now looking back at and saying kind of what happened. Well, first of all, for the pre- the previous 20 years, uh, ending in 1998, the S&P 500 compounded at 17.7%. And by the way, the total market, the total market was 17.2%. So people certainly didn't expect that for the last 20 years, ending 2018, that the compound rate of return would have been 5.6. So this isn't just about questioning the validity of small cap value or large cap value. It's about questioning the validity of equities in general. So that was the S&P 500. And what do we know about from the studies that have been done by DFA uh, looking at these same periods? So if we go back to the 20 years before this 17.7% that that, that happened to that during that previous 20 years. How did large cap value do in the previous 20 years? Well, it was 19.6. So there wasn't that much difference between uh, large value and the S&P 500. But by the way, that was kind of uh, the, the difference that the academics think that probably could come from large cap value versus the S&P 500. What about small cap value? Well, we would have thought that it did a a, a whole bunch better than the large cap value and a whole bunch better than the S&P 500, but the S&P 500 and the market made so much money during that 20-year period that the small cap value getting 19.6 
was virtually, well, it was the same as large cap value. There was no premium for small cap value over large cap value and not much of a premium over the S&P 500. So it, it could feel like there wasn't the premium to maybe to take the risk of, uh, of, of uh, the small cap value. But nobody was complaining. Nobody was saying, I'm unhappy with the return that I've gotten. As a matter of fact, uh, if we look at the government bonds uh, and, um, and the uh, corporate bonds over that 20 years prior to our last 20, they made about 11%. I mean, that was a great return for bonds, what something people consider to be almost riskless, 11%. So everybody was kind of living in this golden age of investing. And, uh, and by the way, uh, yes, uh, inflation uh, was higher than a lot of other periods, but it was 4.5% over that 20-year period. So it was just a great time. But now it's been followed by a very tough period. Now, I might mention that small cap value, um, the DFA index, its return for this last 20 years was 11.3. So it turned out when times were tough that it did get a premium that uh, would have been nice to have in your portfolio along with the S&P 500. Large cap value was 7.3. So large cap value, about not quite 2% better than the S&P, and the small cap value, uh, another 4% above that. So uh, when we look at those two 20-year periods, What do we think? That what happened the previous 20 years was normal? And what happened the last 20 was abnormal? Well, it turns out, if you go back to the period prior to the uh, uh, 1979 to 1998, if you go back to 1959 to 1978, this is the third 20-year period we're taking a look at, the market didn't do well. The S&P 500, and these returns are including the reinvestment of dividends, 4.3%. Sounding familiar? Now, the total market index in that particular 20-year period did significantly better than the S&P 500, 6.7. I mean, that's a big difference for virtually the same asset class. So you had a 20-year period that y- you, could, you could say, you know, what happened? Well, here's uh, what we know about small-cap value and large-cap value. The uh, large-cap value was 10.1. Aha. Here's another period that the, that, that the uh, large-cap blend both S&P 500 and total market, they're both blends, 
struggled for a long period. But large cap value uh, did much, much better. Be nice to have that in the portfolio. Small cap value during that period of time, 13.3. Now, you may remember that, that piece that we showed, the table. In fact, I'll have a link to it. Uh, along with this podcast, where we show the uh, S&P 500 large cap value, small cap blend, and small cap value uh, from 1928 through 2018. It doesn't break it down into these particular 20-year periods. But what you will see is there we show the return of a combination of all four. And it was a, over a 2% advantage uh, for investors uh, by combining all four of the asset classes, and the risk was not that much different. Uh, so uh, there, there's just so much great evidence that it makes sense to, uh, uh, to diversify beyond just that very large kind of a company like we get in the S&P 500 and total market. Remember, those are capitalization-weighted markets, and so the biggest companies uh, get the biggest percentage of, of value in terms of how they do. So the big companies really drive that return. And obviously, when we have a small cap index, it's the smaller companies that are driving that return. Except if you do a large cap value, you're getting rid of a lot of that growth, and it's the growth that holds you back uh, during these uh, difficult times. So let's think about that. There's 60 years, uh, starting in 1959, 50 years, six, I'm sorry, 60 years, uh, and 20 years of low returns, 20 years of high returns, and 20 years of low returns. Well, what do you think happened prior to 1959, if there's any kind of a pattern here? And by the way, I am not suggesting doing any market timing. I'm just saying here that from 1939 to 1958, the S&P 20-year run where the S&P and total market did well, the value did better. That wasn't particularly the case in that period uh, uh, from uh, a 19, uh, um, what was it, 1979 to 1998. So now we have four 20-year periods. And we have, at the end of each of those 20-year periods, some sense of how we might feel really good after the nice 20-year return from 39 to 58. So we're optimistic, and we're, we're expecting to get maybe not all of that, but certainly a lot of it in the following 20 years. And no, that's not what happened. Do we then give up on equities because of 
of uh, 20 years of underperformance compared to what you believed you would get, well, if you gave up, you then missed 20 golden, really golden years. And then that was followed by a period that we, many of us probably, would like to forget because if you were counting on getting a 10% compound rate of return from the S&P 500, you got a little better than half of that. But I still have to point a finger at the implications of putting together all four of those asset classes in your portfolio, even if you didn't add internationals. Adding the internationals is, is, is not huge historically in terms of the added value The the extra return by having value and having small cap as part of the portfolio. So, do I think that value premium that it's dead? Well, I don't have any evidence that it's dead. Uh, I do know this: that over the last twenty years. The S&P 500, as I said, compounded at 5.6. The Russell 1000 value at 6.2. The Russell growth at 5.1. The Russell blend at 5.9. And the Russell 2000, that's the smaller companies, compounded at 8.2. And the growth at 6.1. And then we have the DFA indexes, the large cap value at 7.3, better than the S&P 500. The large cap growth at 6.5, better than the S&P 500. But, but, But keep in mind, the DFA... Their indexes are built in a different way from the indexes uh, of the S&P 500 in the total market. This is not magic that they made more money. It's the way they build their portfolios. And the DFA small cap value index, 11.3, versus the small cap growth index of 9.3. So the last 20 years have not been very good for the market, but having value over that 20 years was was better than not having it. But yes, you're right. Over a handful of what I would call a relative handful of years, you would have been having would have been better having all your money in the S and P 500. Remember, from 1995 to 1999, while a portfolio broadly allocated and diversified amongst big, small, value growth, U.S. international compounded at about 11, while the S&P 500 compounded at over 28% a year for five years. Now, I also know when I look back over this all these numbers. And uh, and I think another reason I'm feeling so good today is I've got so many numbers in front of me. Uh, that is a sickness I have. 
But there's another set of numbers here that I don't want to overlook, and that's the bonds and inflation. Um, The long-term bonds, as I mentioned, um, compounded the governments at 11.1 for the period ending 1998. And for the last 20 years, again, through the end of 2018, long-term government bonds compounded at 6, corporates at 6.4, and in both cases, that was a better return than the S&P 500. So if we want to jump to conclusions, I don't know what you do with that. Do you now overweight your portfolio to bonds because it did better than the S&P 500? And that is one of the challenges we all have as investors. I know. I know, at least according to the data that the academics have have squeezed out of all of the returns they can get their hands on from 1928 through 2018, that the S&P 500 compounded at 9.7, that large value was 11, that small blend was 11.9, and small value was 13.1. Now, that is a problem because when people see those numbers, they're not ready for a 20-year return of the S&P 500 of 4.3 uh, as, it, as it was uh, in the uh, period from uh, 59 to 78. And, and, and they're not ready for the 20-year period from uh, 1999 to 2018 of 5.6 then seems like you should come closer to the 9.7 most of the time or the 11 or the 11.9 or the 13.1. And unfortunately, the market doesn't care about the fact that we're, going, we're getting older every day and we want to be there the next 20 years. If we've got that long to live, we want it to be a great 20 years. And I don't know how I don't know how to, to to say that's going to happen, but I do like this. There was a period of thirteen point four, followed by a period of four point three, followed by a twenty year period of seventeen point seven, followed by a twenty year period of five point six. Is this a meaningful statistical pattern? Absolutely not. But does it give us some sort of 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 hope? I mean, it's gross data mining. But that's what happened. And people all through those 80 years were making decisions based on recent performance. And we all know that's just because that's the way the brain works. If you haven't read Your Money and Your Brain by Jason Zweig, for crying out loud, get a hold of it and read it. Well, I got nine more questions to go. I promise. I promise I won't talk that long on the rest. Question number two, should one fear a bear market in bonds? Well, people have been afraid of a bear market in bonds for, what, more than a decade. 
In fact, all through this bull market that we've been in, people have constantly thought that that interest rates were going to go up and the bonds were going to fall. Now, there are a whole bunch of things you can do to try to defend against that period of time that interest rates do go up and the bonds go down. And one is you can keep your position relatively short, always. That is basically the way that uh, many advisors that I know and respect and, and academics would, would probably tell you that if you have bonds in your portfolio for stability, not for growth, not to make a lot of money, but to stabilize the portfolio, you should stay short to intermediate. And if you look at our fine-tuning tables that we've done uh, to show the year-by-year uh, -year results of of uh, intermediate uh, term bonds going back to 1970, you'll see that even when there were some very difficult times, that those shorter term maturities held up well. So yes, I, I do think that uh, we will have a bear market in bonds, but I don't have any long bonds to worry about. In the meantime, when I've got cash sitting around that I'm going to need in the next year, I don't keep it in cash in a money market fund. I keep it in a short-term bond fund. Question number three, any room for gold in a portfolio? And if so, how much? Well, I really cannot come up with a reason to have gold in the portfolio. If you tell me you want it in the portfolio because it doesn't go up and down with stocks, so it's a non-correlating asset, and that um, while its return is actually less than bonds, less than bonds, it may be that it will do well when the stock market is going down. But guess what? Bonds historically have been a lot better with a lot less risk. But long-term treasuries over the last 50-plus years have made more money than gold, at least gold bullion. I can't speak to gold mining companies. That's, that's different, but just the gold itself. And so if I'm looking for something that might go up when the market goes down, well, let's go back and look at 2008. The portfolio of government bonds, short to intermediate, that I've been recommending for decades, uh, it was up over 7% that year. Now, if you're in long bonds, government bonds, you hit a home run. But if you were in corporate bonds, high yields lost 20 to 40%. High-grade corporates lost 10%. And, and, and so... That's why I've, I've historically recommended for people who are using bonds as defense, probably the best provider of good returns in a catastrophic kind of market uh, will be the government bond, not the corporate. So no, I, I, don't, I don't see gold as something uh, that, uh, uh, that I would want in a portfolio. Uh, I, I look at it as, as being a speculation uh, you will, by the way, you'll have some gold in a diversified portfolio. 
you'll have it not in the gold itself, but the companies that process, manufacture, uh, uh, somehow apply that gold uh, to make more money. Number four, why do you not want small cap funds when you are older? Now, here's a problem I have as I teach, and particularly when I'm teaching a relatively short class and I'm trying to teach too much in too short a period of time. When I build a traditional portfolio of the kind that that I was involved with when I was an investment advisor from 1983 to 2012 when I retired, and the old Merriman Company is still there cranking along. In fact, they're a whale of a lot bigger now than they were when, when, when I left the company. But their strategy, and I think it's a great strategy, is a combination of small and large and value and growth and U.S. and international and REITs and emerging markets and just the right amount of bonds to address your risk tolerance. And you maintain that position in the small cap even when you're retired, but you're going to have less equities Overall, when you're retired, I am 75. I intend to be 50-50 stocks and bonds for the rest of my life. That's my intent because that is within my risk tolerance and it allows us to leave more to others than if 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 we were to uh, put more money in bonds. So I'm in 50% equities, and half of that is small cap. That's how I, my money, by the way, I don't even manage my own money, as I told people at the workshops. Uh, I, I don't want to do that in retirement. That would not be retirement uh, for me. Uh, plus, half of my portfolio is market-timed, and that is the last thing I'd want to be doing on my own in retirement. But I also, at the presentations, talked about the two funds for life strategy, trying to figure out a really simple way that somebody could invest. And I'm, and I'm really looking first and foremost at people in their 20s and their 30s, and hopefully give them a very, very simple strategy that will allow them to combine a target date fund so that uh, all of the glide path work, all of the changes, the asset allocation, and all of that happens automatically for them. And I think that is probably for 99.9% .9 of young people the right answer inside of a 401k. And the problem with the target date funds, and I know most of you have heard me say this, is they don't have enough small and they don't have enough value, particularly for young people. So what we do is, and this was the work that was created by Chris Pedersen in his Two Funds for Life strategy, the formula, the simple formula is you simply 
multiply your age by 1.5. That's how much goes into the target date fund. And uh, and the balance goes into small cap value. You could choose large cap value if you wanted to be more conservative. If your 401k didn't have small cap value, you could use small cap blend. Historically, not as profitable, but you could do that. And then as you get older, you see what happens if you use that formula of 1.5 times. When you get older, you're going to have less and less small cap value in the portfolio. Now, the thought is these are not real sophisticated investors. We're trying to give them some of the, I'll call it the sophistication of a portfolio that has more asset classes. And when I say properly diversified, that is properly diversified more through the eyes of somebody who believes in asset class weightings rather than capitalization weightings. And if you don't know what that means, we'll talk about that another time. But this means that when you're 60 years old, you got 90% in the target date fund. And the target fund date fund doesn't have much small cap. And you've got 10% in small cap value. And by the time you're 66, you don't have any small cap value at all. That is what that gentleman or that lady's question was about. Why am I not advocating for small cap in retirement? I do want small cap in retirement. But I think the people who are going to be using target date funds who may not be market savvy are better off having a more conservative strategy as they go into retirement. This is question number five. Uh, they thanked me for the talk. They said they, by the way, had driven from San Diego uh, up to, to uh, L.A. for the talk. Um, and, uh, and, and a podcast listener, and that's great. Uh, she says, is your alternate buy-and-hold portfolio the best option for my 401k account, or should I follow the strategy for my accounts in uh, uh, some rollover 401ks from the past that are now in IRAs? You know, that is uh, an interesting idea. You could actually have a diversified strategy. You could have part of your strategy outside of your present 401k that uses uh, the... the, um, two funds for life, uh, and then you, what you might want to do inside of your 401k is to establish the more broadly diversified. Now, as I say that, I just realize I actually should do it the other way around because you have the ability inside of your IRA to have any asset class you want, whereas in your 401k, you're somewhat limited. So let me change my advice and say uh, that you could probably do the two funds for life inside of the 401k. And if you're going to take advantage of what I call the ultimate buy and hold strategy, you could do that inside uh, of your IRA. And I might also mention that, that, that Dr. Israelson, In his presentation, he showed what he calls the 712 strategy. It is another approach to asset allocation, different from, from the one that I advocate. And there are reasons why we take the stand that we do, and maybe some uh, podcasts will talk about that. But the, but the bottom line is you could have 
two or three different strategies going on in, uh, in your portfolio. Number six, what is DFA? Well, I talked about uh, DFA for a few minutes uh, and compared them to Vanguard. DFA stands for Dimensional Fund Advisors. It's a family of mutual funds. It's what my wife and I have all of our equity holdings and the buy and hold part of our portfolio uh, with DFA. Uh, they are built on the academic research of people like Dr. Fama and Dr. French. It's an index plus strategy in that it has passive aspects about it, but a way of building a portfolio that it is believed, well, we can look back and know that it did better than the than a traditional kind of index. Uh, in the past, and, and significantly better, uh, as might have been noted by some of my earlier numbers. Uh, but will they have that advantage in the future? I don't know. And uh, those of you who know our work know that we have tried as best we can. I say we. Uh, that's really Chris Pedersen's work. But Chris, working with the foundation, has done his best to build a set of best-in-class ETFs that are very similar to uh, the asset classes of DFA, dimensional funds. And go to DFAUSA.com, I believe it is, uh, for information about the company. Uh, their, their, their educational material, I think, is tremendous. I have been through their three-day workshop, I think, three times in my career, and they are, they are some of the most fun I've, I've ever had in the industry. They do amazing work. Number seven, what is the role of uh, digital currencies uh, in your portfolio? I don't have a role for those. Uh, I don't have any part of my portfolio that I would say is is rank speculation uh, and uh, and has the kind of volatility uh, that uh, digital currencies have. Uh, I made the point in both of my presentations that when it comes to sex, food, and money, those are not intellectual exercises. Those are emotional exercises. And I'm trying to figure out how can people, can they protect themselves from getting emotionally wrapped up in this investment process. And I think having something like that in your portfolio is, um, it's a bigger spark than most people are, are, are going to be able to take. And I believe that, that the majority of people, the majority of people will not make the kind of money that they they think they're going to make if they make any at all in the long term. Uh, I I talked a little bit about investor returns versus fund returns. What I don't want to compare CGM Focus, uh, a, a a fund that I think maybe has twenty to forty stocks in it, um, but it was a hot dog stock fund that, uh, according to Morningstar, compounded at about 18% a year for the 10 years ending, I think, in 1998. Amazing returns. 
And and what happened to the investors on average that put money into that fund? They actually lost money. The uh, what they call the the the, the dollar weighted return uh, was a negative sixteen percent a year. So no, I'm not an advocate of digital currencies. Uh, number eight. I'm going to read this one. It's a it's not real long, but it's to get to the question. I want you to kind of get the sense of how this investor is feeling. I used to be an aggressive, in quotes, investor. But now that I've turned 60, I have swung to risk intolerant, in quotes. I don't recognize myself. I'm extremely worried about outliving my money. Plus, I am concerned about our country's direction. I feel like I need money in my mattress. Calm me down, please. And this this is, and he, and he talks about how much money he has. It's a significant amount. But here's the challenge. When people respond to politics and the economy and the market and uh, and the world is not uh, representing maybe the ethics or the beliefs that you have, it's real easy when you look at the list of good news and bad news that the bad news seems to get brighter and, 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 and is, is more impactful on your emotions than the good news. So people start worrying about, uh, should I, was the market going to collapse again? After all, it collapsed twice of, by more than 50%. In uh, in the the decade from 2000 to 2009, and it hadn't done that since 1974. So it, it was a reminder of what could happen in 2000 through 2002, but not very many people thought it would happen again within just a matter of a few years. And now this gentleman is 60 years old. Now there are a whole bunch of things that can be done. I have no idea about how much risk this person has had in in uh, in his portfolio. He says he's been aggressive. Well, that sounds like he had maybe way too much inequities anyway. So maybe the appropriate amount of equities for what this person has and what this person needs in terms of money to take out of what he has invested, it may be he only needs to be 50%. Now, that may or may not be enough to calm him down. But when people are caught up in this series, this, this, this uh, I can't think of what the word is, where the, 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 sound, the, the, the words go over and over in your mind, a tape that keeps repeating, repeating these things you're worried about. It's terrible. One thing you could do, let's say that you have Social Security. Well, he doesn't at 60. But as conservative as this would be, he could take some part of his portfolio and he could annuitize it. And that would allow him to be guaranteed annual income. Now, that I'm sure is not going to be what he's going to do because he's been aggressive. But I can tell you this, people who do have a pension which is all an annuity is, and he may have a a pension already, but maybe he needs to buy some more pension so that he can have more peace of mind. 
and he also probably needs somebody to sit with him and talk with him. I don't mean because he's crazy, but at some level we're all crazy about these money topics. And so my my sense is that uh, um, people have got to rebuild their portfolio to represent who they are today. I made a lot of money because I took a lot of risk uh, in uh, many, many years ago. But when, when I turned a certain age, I just passed that baton of risk to other people. It was not appropriate for me. I would never be able to make that type of money again. I didn't have to sell, and I could have continued to make way more than I'm likely to make in my grossly, massively diversified portfolio. But I think there's a time you pass that, that, that risk to somebody else. Uh, and if you spend an hour or two with a good advisor, you don't have to hire him for life. Hire him for a few hours to talk it through. Number nine, if you get a pension, would you change your portfolio to be more heavily weighted to stocks? Well, a lot of people do that. They say, look, it's Social Security and a pension. That's the same thing as having bonds in your portfolio. Well, it actually isn't, uh, not in the traditional sense. Uh, when I was an advisor, I would try to figure out what is the risk level, your, your maximum loss level that you can accept before you're going to have that sense of panic and want to go someplace safe. And I believed that it was my job to try to build the portfolio to represent that combination of fixed income and equity, because that's the way you feel it when the market's going down. Because I, I, I can tell you that there were customers that, that we had that if you put all of their, and let's just pretend for a second, they had a half a million in, uh, in, in, in taxable accounts and a half a million in tax-deferred. And they should be 50-50 stocks and bonds. Those are the assumptions. You could put, or you should put, for tax reasons, the 50% uh, that's taxable into equities and the 50% that's tax-deferred uh, uh, into bonds. That's what you should do. But it doesn't work for most clients. Because when they look at that equity portfolio, that, that's all the money that they have that's kind of there as their nest egg that's liquid and you don't have to think about paying tax on it if you sell it. All of a sudden, if that's down 50%, and it's going to be, they don't look at the whole thing. I mean, you can beat them up and you can bring them back in the office and say, now, remember what we said, how much risk we are willing to take and how we could have these two separate accounts and still have that risk management? Come on, let's, let's get it back together and understand it the way you understood it when you were calm. But again, sex, food, and money, those are powerful emotions. And sometimes it's hard to, to, to make... Uh, a common sense out of the process when it's your money. Number 10, and it's a biggie. I had it actually asked several times as well as I just this morning got a uh, an email in with the same question. 
and and I I don't I don't uh, it's not hard to understand why people ask this. I talked in my presentation about how important expenses are and that the academics say that the the surest way to higher returns is through lower expenses. But remember, those expenses have to do with similar investment or asset classes. So when we talk about a low-cost S&P 500 versus a high-cost S&P 500 or an or what they call a closet S&P 500, we think you're better off in the lower cost one by far. On the other hand, what that leads a lot of people, and I'm going to read part of this uh, this uh, uh, email. He says, I'm an avid listener uh, and intrigued by your buy and hold strategy. And he's talking about the one that has all the different asset classes. He says, I'm almost 40, and I've been about 100% equities, mostly in total U.S. stock market index in Fidelity, Vanguard, and through my employer. The expense ratio of my funds of my portfolio ranges from one one-hundredth of one percent to four one-hundredths of one percent. I've noticed that in order to diversify my portfolio with the additional asset classes that you recommend, I will end up choosing funds with expense ratios much higher than I'm currently paying. They're not high, and then he says about 19 basis points, 19 one-hundredths of 1%. But when compared to four one-hundredths and one one-hundredths, I'm left to wonder whether there's enough benefit in further diversifying to offset the increase in expense ratios. And here's how I feel about that. If the future looks like the past, and I don't think we would question the idea of lower expenses leading to better returns in the same asset class. I don't think we would argue about that. But and I talked about this uh, in the first uh, the first piece I did. The S and P five hundred over a twenty year period uh, makes thirteen point four percent versus large cap value for that same period of fifteen. Am I worried about a few hundredths of one percent? No. If in fact there is a one-plus percent premium. Then in the next period, the S&P was 4.3 and large cap value was 10.1. The next period, the S&P was 17.7, large cap value was 19.6. The next period, the S&P 500 was 5.6, the large value was 7.3. So you get where I'm coming from. I mean, there are situations in life that when you pay more, you should get more. And all the academic research that points to the premium in small and the premium in value and the premium in uh, stocks over bonds, because if your plan offered you a bond fund with no expense ratio, would you then drop your total market index 
and go an S and P five hundred and go into the bond in index that there's no fee at all. You would save one one hundredths of one percent or four one hundredths of one percent. You see where I'm coming from. So yes, I do think it is worth the effort to diversify. On the other hand, I'm getting the sense at forty years of age you're a really good saver. And you're taking lots of risk. You're 100% in equities. You know, you're pedal to the metal. I don't know what your glide path is going to be as you get older. But right now, you're going for the gold ring. I just think that gold ring would be a lot richer. But you know something? I, 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 I have so much respect for the work of John Bogle and his attitude. He said, we really have to kind of address when is enough. And at what point in your case, you're 40 now, and, and I suspect uh, when you'll have enough is going to come later. But there are a lot of people in this FIRE movement, financial independence, retire early in that movement. There are a, a lot of people who are trying to retire by age 40. And and so I don't know how far away you might be in this process, but at some point you might say, you know, I've got enough money right now. If I just stayed 50-50 stocks and bonds for the rest of my life, I'd probably just be fine. And that's the part of the glide path that people like you have to face. When do you have enough? And once you have enough, how conservative or, by the way, when you have enough, do you put that aside and and then take the rest of your money and, and put pedal to the metal? You know, you got a lot of choices when you have enough. But you're already 100% equity, and so that's lots of risk there, almost guaranteed to lose half your money one of these days. And uh, But I do think that even a 10 or 20% slice of small cap value would make a difference. I I hope you take a look at the uh, uh, the study that uh, Chris Pedersen has done in the two funds for life. Uh, and by the way, Chris is working on a new book that he's going to dig a lot deeper into this whole subject of two funds for life and what you can do with a little bit of uh, small cap value. I hope that I hope that that uh, helps, Mark. And and thanks to all of you who came out. Uh, it is. Uh, it is you it's an honor to be able to work for all of you i'm hoping that it's changing your life at least a little bit uh if i can help somebody calm down as the one as the one gentleman asked i'd love to figure out how to help people calm down unfortunately i'm not an investment advisor i'm simply a, an old grizzly investor who's trying to share what I've learned from people who are a whole lot smarter than I am. Thanks for listening. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.